Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Allez, le corner pour Dani Ceballos. Oui. Et c'est prolongé Et c'est prolongé, Alexandre Lacazette La gâchette a déjà dégainé Et non, et non, et non, on va refuser oh ce but pour une position de hors-jeu, Alexandre Lacazette, on va revoir ça This is Arscast Extra Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you too. I think only on this podcast do the mm. words good morning Sounds so forlorn and so sad. <laughs> you did I make guess that... it's just a good morning, then. Yeah, <sighs> you did make that one sound particularly rueful, I have to say. <laughs> good morning. <sighs> Bloody hell, not another good morning. Oh, um, some variety yes. would be good. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm, you know, obviously, uh, how will I put this? Kind of frustrated and annoyed by the game yesterday. And keen to sort of tease this out because, you know, I'm looking at all the reaction online. I'm looking at the questions that we're getting from uh, our listeners on Twitter and um, uh, on the Discord and Facebook and and the general reaction to it. I was about to chime in there. I could see you just before we started recording. <laughs> uh, you were you were chatting with um, Tim Stillman, uh, you know, over the you know, playing Aubameyang as the striker thing. And I was about to sort of send a tweet to join in with that conversation. Then I said, fuck it, let's do it on the podcast. So I'm sure we'll do it on the podcast and, and get it in, uh, you know, to people's ears that way. But there's kind of a lot to, to unpack, isn't there? And there's a lot, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that we said on the, on the last podcast we did, which was three days ago, Friday, mm. whatever it was, mm. After the Rapid Vienna game, you know, we won. It wasn't convincing. And we were talking about how, you know, we're a work in progress and we're going to need a bit of patience. There are going to be ups and downs, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, to to sort of – I don't want to – how do I put this? It feels like there's a bit of an end-of-the-world feeling about the reaction to this game, and I completely understand it. So it's trying to separate – this idea that we are a work in progress, et cetera, et cetera, with the kind of criticism that we're going to have to get into when we talk about this performance and this result. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> what was the question? Someone responded to your tweet asking for questions. Was it Safian? You said, not to be dramatic or anything, guys, but are we finished as an establishment? Uh, <laughs> I really like the phrasing of that. Not as a football yeah. club. As an establishment. <laughs> there is a bit of that going around. And listen, we touched on it in the last podcast. I don't want to go too hard on it, you know, in this one. But yeah. I do have a theory that kind of what's happening in the world and the fact that, you know, there's no fans in stadium is kind of amplifying uh, mm. the drama that's playing out on social media. But 
Listen, we can talk about patience all we like. There is an antidote to patience in football, a kind of kryptonite to patience, rather, uh, and it's results and games. And when you don't win results and you don't win games Mm. as a football fan, you're annoyed, you're upset, you know... Mm. As you just said, it's frustrating. So, you know, that's part of the experience, isn't it? To be, we can be kind of micro pissed off, even if we are macro patient. Yeah, sure. We can lurch from one extreme to the other in terms of emotion and reaction and all of it's those things. It's our job. That's what it's we do. Job. Yeah. So uh, just uh, that that tweet came from uh, Safian on Twitter, at Safdo <laughs> underscore. So thank you for that one. It did, it did make me laugh. So, um, okay, where do we start well, there is so much to unpack in this game. And yeah. You're right. I'm sort of looking forward to it too because, as uh, frustrating as it was, I think it was also kind of interesting and kind of tells us quite a lot about where we are. I yeah. Think. Like, I have to say, at half time, I was a bit worried, obviously, that we hadn't taken the chances that we'd created uh, because we are a team that doesn't create enough chances and I think a couple of them were very good and we'll get into the 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 nuts and bolts of those but generally speaking I was relatively encouraged by the performance and the way that we played even if I could recognize that it was quite odd and I think the really odd thing about this game is that the departure of David Luiz on 47 minutes two minutes into the second half basically ended us as a creative force in the game, which is mental, given the fact that he's a central defender. Now, I realise that Leicester's approach to the game was such that it meant he saw a lot of the ball and his ability on the ball, his ability to find passes, was really important to the to the good things that we did in the in the first half. But he he had thirteen of seventeen passes into the attacking third in the first half. He went off after two minutes of the second half and still finished the game as the Arsenal player with the most passes into the attacking third. Not not only the most completed, the most attempted. Yeah. And he was only on for like 47 minutes. Um, I mean, is that just like a weird thing because of the way Leicester played? Is it one of those... I don't know. Is it just kind of a, a freaky? It's not a thing, freak. or what? It, it's what not is a freak. it? It's happened already this season. It's happened already, right? Uh, and it happened last season too. That David Luiz has been our player with the most final third entries. Um, I mean, maybe after all the Colo Torre at DM talk, uh, it's time to unleash David Luiz at number ten. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, clearly the secret to our attacking issues I mean I think it is, it's a couple of things it's a function of the way teams have played against us at times mm. it's also a function of the way we play and we build up through him so much and it was you know we'll come on to this but once he went off we kind of became even more predictable because it was just Shaka every single time um, his passing in the first half was at times breathtaking I thought yep. it was pretty Extraordinary. There was a couple of balls out to Tierney that took my breath away. But uh, it's also illustrative of an issue, I think, in that we're having to go direct from him and we're not finding ways to play through the midfield. Well, yeah, it is very difficult, though. I think we we have to acknowledge that it's really difficult to, to break down a team which is sitting with every yeah. man behind the ball. And we've seen it many times in the past. But you know what I suppose? I think what might be part of the frustration that people have is that we used to see this a lot under Arsene Wenger, 
because of the way Arsenal played, because of the the kind of possession domination that we had, we had all these technical footballers. Teams would come and they would sit and they would soak up pressure and they'd hit us on the break and they'd score with their first shot. And it was really annoying, right? But what, what that was coupled with more often than not was a kind of relentless attacking intent from Arsenal, you know? Mm. So it was kind of easier to deal with. You could you could look at the way the opposition was playing and say, well, I understand why they're doing it, but I can see what Arsenal are trying to do here. We're just going to keep attacking. We're going to keep trying to knock on the door and find the space. We don't necessarily seem to be that way under Mikel Arteta. So I think we have to we have yeah. to acknowledge that it is hard when a team sits in a kind of 3-6-0 formation and, you know, the only real option available to you is a switch of play to either your left back or your right back or or perhaps to somebody like Hector Bellerin whose movement caused a, a few problems in the first half. Yeah, and I think it's interesting what you say about, you know, Arsenal's football. In a way, it kind of gave you a kind of moral high ground because yeah, you sort yeah, of yeah, felt yeah. like, yeah. you know, well, we're trying something here. But actually the way in which we attacked was so different. So if I think about it, quintessentially under Arsene, it was kind of a short passing game that would result in Arsenal having possession in the final third, you know, trying to play one-twos on mm. the edge of the box against a packed mass defence. What The reason Louise has all these final third progressions is because the, one of the first things Arteta did when he came in in December last year was he said, you know, what we're going to look to do is, is go from f- back to front very, very quickly. And it's a, it's a tenant of uh, Guardiola's play. Effectively, it's, I mean, you could call it long ball, but it's that you, you get from defence into attack with one pass through the lines as quickly as you can. Mm. The idea being you don't give the opposition time to amass people behind the ball, you know, and you create overloads by passing through their midfield. And that is what Louise is trying to do. And in the early part of Arteta's reign, I actually think it worked really quite well. Mm. The problem is now people are wise to it and it's become a bit one-dimensional. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, 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 just to say... I think you're right in what you say about there were things in the first half that were more positive. And it's, you know, I think when you've got a team who are kind of evolving, we're used to the idea of sort of one step forward, two steps back. What was crazy about this game is that that happened in the space of 90 minutes. You know, the first half Mm. felt like one step forward. Second half felt like two steps back. Yeah, that's fair. What, 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 um, let's talk about the chances then. Um, Mm. I think the first thing we have to talk about is the good goal that we scored, which should have stood. Yeah, that's a goal. And I have have some sympathy for the manager if we're going to be critical about, you know, some of his decisions or the approach or the way that we played in the second half. I think it's also fair to point out that we scored what should have been a good goal. It should not have been disallowed. Um, I I feel um, quite aggrieved. By that decision, because not the first time in recent weeks that VAR has, uh, you know, stuck an unwanted finger up our arses. Um, I, I just, uh, yeah, it, it, it's redundant, I suppose, to say it changes the complexion of the game. Um, obviously, it does if you score after three or four minutes. You know, it, it really does change the way Leicester have to play because they've got to come out a bit and then, you know, you can... Um, you can play the game a little bit differently. So, I, I, yeah, I think we've. if we're going to be pissed off about the way that we played, I think we can be pissed off about that decision too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
<clears throat> there's a good clip online, I think, of Ian Wright analysing it. Uh, I don't know which channel he was doing commentary for. But right, haven't seen it you yet. Can, you can see that there's a view from, I think, behind the goal, basically, where Lacazette makes contact with the ball at the near post. And at that point, Schmeichel's entirely unimpeded. You know, it's yeah. almost like a kind of visual trick of Shaka being near him, but there's nothing to stop him making the save. Um, I thought it was, uh, yeah, a wrong decision. We should have had a goal there. Um, and very, very, very frustrating. Mm. But, you know, part of an opening period, uh, you know, and I know that there's a reluctance probably to hear positives after that result, but I think in the opening 23 minutes, we did at least have eight attempts on goal, which is actually more than we managed in each of our last two home games. So yeah. there was a bit more intent there in that early stage. For sure. I think that's what was encouraging about that first half is like they weren't necessarily all high quality chances, but there was there was a bit more going on from an attacking perspective. You know, I thought the some of the movement, I mentioned Bellerin, there were a couple of times he got in behind, which was good. And obviously using Tierney from the left-hand side and, and the quality mm-hmm. of his crosses... Um, is really uh, is really good. So the two chances, I think the first one is the the Aubameyang one, um, mm-hmm. which he heads over. I think that's a better chance than it looks. It's an unbelievable cross, mm. I think, from Kieran Tierney. Maybe off one of those Luis Crossfield passes. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, he gets under it, Aubameyang. His timing's all wrong. I mean, yeah. it's not his it's not his strongest finish. You know, getting onto the end of a cross like no. that in the air. Um, but it's better than it looks. I agree with you. But yeah. it's nothing compared to the one we're about to get onto. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the that's the Lacazette one. I mean, there's no two ways about this. There's no equivocating. That should be a goal. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually laughed this morning when I watched it back again, and Lacazette sort of fails to make contact with it, and then he sort of indicates to Tierney like, "Give it to me into my feet," and it's like he's given you an open goal. The perfect cross yeah. that you just had to get your head on. I'm and just, I think, I think oh to be honest, he closes his eyes, really. Uh, I'm watching it again here. I think he basically closes his eyes. And that's the only real explanation for it. He's worried about the foot, the boot, isn't he, coming across. But that's not what you want to see from your centre forward. No, I mean, he's got to score that. I don't care whether it's played into his feet or to his head. I mean, he literally just has to to make contact with that. And it is a goal. So it's a really, really bad miss from a player who I know we had a bit of a discussion about him the other day but I I thought uh, last night was like a microcosm of the problems that he causes Um, I think it was as bad as bad a performance as I remember from Lacazette mm. I thought it was really really bad and I found myself as the game wore on kind of being amazed that he was still out there I know a couple of injuries might have influenced that uh, in terms of the substitutions Arteta had available. But, you know, from yeah. about, well, basically from half time onwards, he looked kind of spent as a physical force. This is and a really, in, yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, he, sorry, he just fell into that habit of doing that thing that he sometimes does where he, he just ends up committing a lot of fouls. Oh, um, Jesus, and I it, swear It's very to frustrating. God. I swear to God, I was chatting to uh, Andrew Allen um, just sort of on message during the game, you know, and I mentioned it to him about the foul. I think there was one in about the fifth minute he gave away, mm-hmm. uh, quite central, about 35 yards out, nothing came of it. And I said to Andrew, like, these these fouls he gives away in, in these areas are are so annoying. And he did another one in the second half. Um, mm. 
like it's a consistent element of his game. Like there is a clumsiness to him in our half when he's trying to keep possession, when mm. he is receiving the ball, you know, w- with his back to the opposition goal, but in our half. There have been countless occasions where it's broken down and we've been punished for it. He gives away far too many free kicks in that area of the pitch. And I think in some ways, you know, as I'm, I'm going to be critical of the player here because I think technically he should be better than that. Mm. I, I think you have to ask questions about his continued use in this kind of a system because, you know, people talk about it and we talked about it the other day and you mentioned, yeah. you know, the the system that Mikel Arteta wants to play and the kind of striker that, that Lacazette is or what he wants from a striker within that system. And I'm wondering, well, what is it? What is exactly uh, what he wants from this? Because he's not good defensively. He's spending a, a lot of time, um, you know, chasing down midfielders in games, um, which I don't think is a particular strength of his. I think physically there's a big, big issue here with Lacazette. Like, I know he's never been the fittest guy. You know, when he arrived first, he would play 60, 70 minutes, um, not playing full games. Remember, people were talking about that. Like, why can't this guy play a full match? Why is he always being taken off by Arsene Wenger? So there's long been a, a fitness issue, but I think a physical issue now, I just see heavy legs. Um... I mean, there was a, a moment, I think, in, in the first half where Louise sent Hector Bellerin over the top or around the corner. I can't remember what it was. And Hector pulled the ball back into the box and Lacazette was sort of standing nowhere near it when he should have been busting his hole to get into the space, into that gap where Bellerin was going to pull the ball back. Mm-hmm. And I don't think uh, Bellerin was particularly pleased about that. There was a little bit of an argument between the two of them. So I just see a player who's really, really struggling and you can we can come to the Aubameyang central thing again uh, in a minute, I guess. But if what Arteta is looking for from a striker is what Lacazette is giving him, then I'm really worried. Yeah, yeah. And I and, and as I said last week, I still think you know for the type of centre forward Arteta seems to want, I don't think we have that player, and Lacazette is not that player. I mean, he looks way off it physically. Um, I, I Like you, I almost have a little bit of sympathy with him at this point because I just feel like... Just don't know. Hang on. Don't put words in my mouth. Tiny. <laughs> tiny. <laughs> uh, but I just feel like he's being asked to do something he doesn't look capable of doing at all at the moment. And the physical point is a really good one. I mean, when he first came to this league, we were struck by, you know, he didn't necessarily have the power or the speed that mm. we anticipated, or that it looked like he had in the French league, and I think that tells you something about the sort of difference that can exist, you know, between those two divisions. But I mean, his movement certainly off the ball was better at that point. I remember. Do you remember that period where it was like Lacazette's making all these runs, but we're just not picking him out? I don't know if you remember that, but it no, was like a big trope of discussion. <laughs> it was like this thing. Of no, like, I'm not you doubting know, you. I just don't remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, oh, look, he makes these darts short. He darts in behind. We never look for him. We never look, you know, to find him. Mm. That was, I mean, I'm talking when he first came in. Right, right, right. six months. Oh, geez, I can't remember anything. That's way too long ago. 2020. And that's just not present anymore. He looks, I actually looked up the other day. I think he's 29, is he now? And he looks an old 
29. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I mean, we talked about him as a kind of selling opportunity potentially this summer and mm. an up- upgrade opportunity. I do wonder if there was money on the table, um, which I think there might have been, not maybe not as much as we would have liked, but I think there may have been. I do wonder how we yeah. may reflect on that. He doesn't look like a player who at the end of the season is going to have a great deal of value. No, well, I mean, look, he's got a year left. This was part of the issue. And, and you know, again, you have to 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 say that it was not a normal market and not, and not normal circumstances yeah. this summer. So that obviously played a part with not just the business we did, but I think what many clubs did or didn't do, you know, because of the, the financial impact of COVID-19 and everything else. But part of can the I, reason... I, yeah? Oh, sorry. No, well, I was just going to say that part of the reason there was a decision to be made was the fact that, you know, he is 29. He's not worth a new deal. There's no reason whatsoever to extend his contract. So with two years to go, you're sort of at maximum transfer value, I guess. You know, uh, in as much as this time next year, or Jesus, this time next year, but by next summer, you know, he'll have 12 months left on his contract. Are we going to be left with another Mustafi situation, another Socrates situation, another Ozil situation, you know? Possibly. And yeah, that's, I think very possibly. And that's, you know, it goes right to the top of the club and the decisions that have and haven't been made, you know. And I, I have, uh, again, I have sympathy for um, trying to do business in the last market, but, you know. I, I think we should talk a bit about the shape of the team in the first half because mm-hmm. it was a little bit different. You know, Arteta ostensibly started three central midfield players in yeah. Party, Shaka and Ceballos. Um, it, it meant Tierney pushing a lot higher. I was very surprised by the orientation of the front three. You know, as much as I uh, can see some logic in Aubameyang on the left, I'm not at all a fan of Aubameyang on the right. So I just wanted to sort of generally, yeah. what did you think of the, the shift in the tactical setup in this game? Um... I don't really understand it. I don't quite know what the thinking was, whether it was tailored to what he thought Leicester might do or something. I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, I like Saka and I like what he can do um, in that area of the pitch. But again, like you, I don't like Aubameyang on the right. I think there is a case to be made for Aubameyang on the left, even if it's not my favourite, you know, look at the amount of goals that he scored from out there. So, you know, you can yeah. you can make that argument relatively convincingly, um, you know, if you didn't already have this issue ongoing with, with Lacazette, um, you know, who, who whose form, uh, I think, is thrusting a decision about who plays through the middle, whether that's Aubameyang, whether it's Nketi or somebody else. Um, I, I agree with that. And by yeah. the way, just on the on the plane from the right thing, these stats are from sort of towards the end of last season, but they are quite instructive. His XG playing on the left wing at that point was 0.59 goals per game. Mm. His XG playing as a lone striker was 0.63. So basically 0.6 for both. His XG from the right wing in his games in that position for Arsenal t- to that date was 0.19. Mm. So... His movement from that side isn't as good. He doesn't get chances there. I think it technically is not the easiest position for him to play. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't like that what, at all. 
What, why, um, why do you think he didn't play Nicolas Pepe? Do you think we have an issue here with Arteta and Pepe in that this is a home game? He could have played Aubameyang on the left. He could have played... Um, he could have played... Uh, yeah, uh, Pepe on the right and Lacazette through the middle if that's what he wanted, yeah. Lacazette or, or Enkedia, you know, to keep I mean, that system and that shape. You know, why? what's going on with Pepe here? Because it felt like towards the end of last season he had made a bit of progress and there was a bit more a bit more belief in him from Mikel Arteta. Mm. And we remember the FA Cup final performance and how well he played in that. And it was like, okay, he's got that first season out of the way. Um you know, it wasn't a brilliant season, um, price tag, et cetera, et cetera, but it was still reasonable in terms of what he produced. He was our second most productive player in terms of goals and assists when you combine them. This season, it feels like he has taken a, a, a step backwards. I know his performances have not been that convincing, but when you're in and out of the team and when you're perhaps not feeling the trust of the manager or the belief of the manager, it is going to be a bit more difficult, isn't it? He came on yesterday and he was on the right for a little bit and then all of a sudden he was over on the left. You know, it's Yeah, that a was weird... weird as well. Yeah. That was weird as well. I think, I think in the front three in this game, there were weird things. <laughs> and I would even have preferred from the start to see Saka from the right. You know, he's done that position before he can do it okay. I, I think you're right. There seemed to be progress last season with Pepe. But what happened in the summer? Mikel Arteta went out and approved a massive contract for Willian, who plays in the same position. Yeah. And I think that really tells us what he thinks of Nicola Pepe. I, I, I think, if I had to guess, I'd say that he struggles to incorporate Aubameyang and Pepe in the same front three. I think he probably feels they don't give you enough technical security you know that there's too much risk almost incurred in that and that's why when he did play them I think he played them against City didn't he kind of offset them with with Willian Mm. that's his preference but I I I have two feelings about that I have one feeling which is that I still have hope for Pepe and I still feel that a lot of the time I look at Arsenal's attack I feel like it's so predictable you know and I feel like the degree of structure makes it a bit one note. Mm. Pepe is an improviser who can kind of exist outside of that and give you a bit of X factor. And so I kind of, um, I I like seeing him out there because I think, yeah, he could could be crap for 80 minutes, but he might do one thing Mm. that makes the difference. On the other side of it, I also have this kind of mm, mounting feeling that he is not the player I want him to be. And uh, that is, you know, and so to a certain extent, I empathise with Arteta as well. Yeah, there's a really good piece over on Arsblog News. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, John Arlington did a a really lovely uh, data viz piece on Nicolas Pepe and the kind of player that he is and, and maybe some of the incompatibilities that he has as a player or the things certainly that made him really effective at Lille are not present in the way that we play football, you know? Absolutely. So, completely different team, completely different way of playing. Yeah, and he was given an amount of freedom at Lille mm. that he certainly mm. doesn't have at Arsenal. And I, I would say that few players have at Arsenal in terms of what they're, I'm not going to say allowed do, but but the decisions that they make on the pitch, they do feel 
quite rigid, don't they? I think you used that word in the last podcast that that there's a sort of rigidity to the to the yeah. way that Mikel Arteta sets up his team and what he wants are these patterns and he wants the players to to be in certain positions in certain areas and you know it's quite exacting and if it doesn't quite work off, there isn't the what what, what why would we say it? Um, not enough jazz in the orchestra, yeah. if you like. This improvisation, I think, like that. I can't believe we're back to this after however many years, but the handbrake <laughs> is firmly on. Oh, it, it is, is yeah. On. yeah. And uh, Arteta is not prepared to let it go. I think that he thinks he can only release it when he is confident that he has man for man a significantly superior team than the opposition. And the problem in this Premier League is that game to game, that isn't often the case. I mean, every game feels close. Every game feels hard. This league is tight and competitive. And if Arteta is waiting for the point where, well, I'm I'm pretty certain, you know, man for man, we're better than our opponent here. He's going to be waiting a lot of transfer windows, I would suggest. Yeah, yeah. We might only see it against Dundalk if he thinks we're a better man for man again uh, than Dundalk. Do you on, share on that sense? I get the sense that there's a sort of... I wouldn't necessarily say it's about being man for man better. I think it's to do with with him trusting some of the players in the team. Like He's I, a control freak, basically. I, I think that's the case, yeah. I think and he really wants that. to control everything. And I, I understand it to an extent in that you want to control, you want the players to know and you want the players to be aware. Like You don't want them running around like headless chickens. I think there's a balance, though, to be found between putting in place structures which allow your team to play and being so demanding and so rigid about what they can and can't do that it kind of um, nullifies some of their technical qualities. You know, as we said the other day, when you look at the, the pass that uh, Elneny made to Bellerin for the goal against Rapid Vienna, that's a lovely little piece of attacking football, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, predicated on the movement. You know, technically, I think we think these footballers aren't capable of doing some things that they actually are. You know, they are capable of a bit more well, look expression. Well, yeah, look at Yeah. Exactly. You know, so I think there is... Perhaps a, an idea that we have, well, they're not good enough to do X, they're not good enough to do Y, and that's that's it. I think they kind of are. I, I just get the I get the sense he doesn't quite trust that they will do what he wants, or whether it's a case that we're not yet capable of dealing with uh what happens when it breaks down if we become a bit more expressive. Well, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk about Leicester's winner shortly, but I, I, I think for me, it, yeah, for me, it's not really about aesthetics. Like, I'll watch a shitload of boring games if we win them all. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, mm. I will. Not everyone will, but I will. I like results. And But the thing is, at the moment, you know, this isn't really doing enough. That, that's the issue. I yeah. mean, it's fine to have a really structured, hyper-controlled team. You know, I think there are elements of Man City that are like that if it's proving successful. But at the moment, we are not doing that. So mm. it's natural that you look at it and go, what can we do differently? I mean, moving into the second half, 
think we sort of covered off most of the points finished in the first half. I found it fascinating how I felt like Arteta tweaked things a little bit at halftime. And it, it, Luis's injury didn't help. But in the first half, he was so insistent with Danny Ceballos that he had to come and stand out on the right-hand side. And he was screaming at him. And Ceballos kept drifting centrally. And Arteta was like, no, I literally want you... I think he was saying Alado or something. I, I think Alado, you know, to the, to the yeah, side. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So he wanted him out there on the flank and, you know, Shaka wide as well. And everything built up through the flanks and in the second half through the left flank. And Leicester were just wise to it, it seemed mm. like to me. Well, look, I, I tell you one, we talked about Lacazette, but I think Ceballos was very lucky to spend 90 minutes on the pitch yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it looked to me from the very start that he was just a half a yard off it, whether it was the injury that he's had or something else. But, you know, he was not at the races at all. Um, you know, and, and the game... In which we, I think the the headline I wrote on the blog yesterday was, I can Thomas Partey provide some penetration to the Arsenal horseshoe in midfield? Well, unfortunately not, because we played in a way which gave (laughs) him (laughs) so little of the ball. It was like, what is... What is the thinking here? I couldn't quite get my head around that because, you know, Ceballos um, and, and Shaka were like wide either side of him at times. And Shaka, of course, you know, as the game went on, was dropping back into that left center half position, which um, ultimately proved a bit of a problem for us with the goal. But the way that Partey, and I can't believe we've got to over half an hour in the podcast, the way he was sort of bypassed. Yeah. Do you think, why do you think that was? I mean, was it a, tactical decision by Arteta was it simply a case that the players that we have aren't used to having a player there in that position that you know I don't quite get it I I don't think us not building up through the centre of midfield is new let's say that Mm. I think we've been doing that for a while but this was the most exaggerated example and maybe because Partey is new we saw it a bit more clearly I mean what happened in the second half is that he was basically just filling the space uh, in the centre circle and providing a bit of cover for the occasional Leicester counter-attack. Mm. He was dropping short, you know, asking for the pass in from from Gabriel, from Shaka, and it wasn't coming. And, you know, Arsenal's build-up play was so uh, monotonous in terms of coming out through mm. Shaka. And, and I must say, I don't hate Granite Shaka dropping into that back three to help us build up play. I don't hate it. I know it cost us. It did cost us in the end. But in theory, especially once you've lost Louise, I think he's a good passer from that situation. Mm-hmm. But but as with a lot of things in this Arsenal team, it was just the lack of variety, you know. And Partey, when he got on the ball in the first half, I thought had progressive moments. There was a brilliant pass for Hector Bellerin, mm. uh, who ran in behind and got onto it superb ball and I think he's got that range I think he's already shown in two appearances for Arsenal he's got much better range than he was ever allowed to express at Atletico Madrid and yeah it did seem absolutely absurd to not use it at all so here we have a a a manager who in this game let's Mm -hmm. put it this way has played his best striker out of position, out of position, right? Yeah, yeah. He's got a, a main striker who was, he dropped an absolute stinker. 
He had um, a central midfielder in Sabayos who um, wasn't quite as stinky as Lacazette, but was still really poor. Um, bypassed probably his best central midfield player, um, whether that was intentional or not, um, and played... Um, what was I going to say? I've forgotten what the other thing was. But, you know, we've got a number of what you might call square peg round hole issues. Would that mm. be fair? Like, is it, is it, uh, let's come back to the Aubameyang thing. Is it too simplistic? Because this is where I was going to weigh in on, on what you were talking to Tim about. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that moving Aubameyang into the centre, it doesn't solve, I accept, it does not solve the greater, wider issue of our creativity as a football team, right? No. But does it give you breathing room if your striker takes the one or two chances that you create? Like, it's, I know it's, it's easy to say, well, Aubameyang scores that goal uh, that Lacazette missed yesterday, but I think he probably does. And I know we've seen him miss a couple of sitters in his time as well, uh, Aubameyang, but I think he scores that one. Mm-hmm. So while you're trying to find the solution to the creativity issue that you have, you know, the, 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 the team's inability to fashion chances and opportunities, is it not uh, an idea to play your best spinal players in their best positions and to get the most out of them? So you've got your Gabriel, who I think was impressive again. You know, um, you've got Partey, who perhaps wasn't used the right way or wasn't brought into the game in the right way, but clearly is our best central midfield player. And we've got our best centre forward knocking around on the wing, you know? It, it just... I it's just not a bad feel- place to start, certainly. Yeah. By, by putting people so make, where they're most comfortable. Yeah, so make your spine as strong as it can be and then supplement it with the things that can make it even better. I mean, to return to what Arteta was doing right at the start, I mean... <sighs> We know we always talk about this five-channel attack, Mm -hmm. right? And when he first came in, that five-channel attack was Saka, who was playing kind of as a left-back in a four, but pushing on extremely high. Aubameyang, more narrow. Lacazette, who granted was a much more informed Lacazette at that time. Meza Ozil, who was starting as a 10 and playing as the sort of inside right. And Nicola Pepe. And that five, to me, had a much more natural chemistry and balance and threat than the five we saw last night and the five we're seeing at the moment. Mm. Um, I mean, the five we saw last night was basically Tierney, Saka, Aubameyang, Lacazette, Bellerin. Now, granted, look, one of those players is Lacazette, who's in absolutely woeful form. Two of them are Tierney and Bellerin, who are good players, but not attackers. Mm. You know, it, it, I think it, to some extent it might be as simple as let's fill the five attacking channels with attacking, attacking players. Yeah. Um, and, and I know there was a lot about Saka, the left back, that was problematic. And I'm not saying we should go back to that. But, you know, it allowed us to get that overload and to have an extra attacking player on the field. I do, you know, I was excited to see a midfield three of Shaka, Sabayos, and Partey. But when 
one of those players is playing left centre back and one is playing right wing back, it stops being a midfield three at that point. Yeah, because Partey is then really easy to cry it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a midfield one. Yeah. Genuinely, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, to, and we, we thought we could afford that. And to a certain extent, we could. We'll get onto the goal we conceded in a moment. Mm. But I, I do think that that, um, that five, those five lanes, the, the chemistry isn't right, you know? And, yeah. and I think you can... I think you can the the, the the biggest case for a Birmingham at centre forward is how bad Lacazette has been. Yeah, I think if in you know, I think you could have a debate about where where he functions best. But at the moment, Lacazette's form is what kind of demands the change. I think you know, and I, I you know, I think Eddie is a promising young player, a long way from being the finished article. But you know, I think he also finishes that one. Mm. You know, mm. that's the yeah, kind so, of goal so- that he scores. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sort of surprised he's not getting more minutes right now. I have to say, like, he didn't start the Europa League mm. game and he didn't start this game. I found that a bit odd. Yeah. Um, and, that, and do you know what? On the subject of that, there are other players in this squad that I think Arteta could trust more. And Go on. Well, I, when I look at this attack and I talk about that balance... And, you know, the as- the aspects and attributes we don't have. So one is kind of technical security mm-hmm. that, to a degree Ozil was providing us. I know we've got William to, to come back, but I think I think that, you know, someone like Reese Nelson um, as an extra attacking player in the final third could provide some of that continuity, security, creativity. I also think we lack off-the-ball runners desperately. And I think... From from everything I know about Emil Smith Rowe, and I I know this seems mad to say, you know, we've got these eighteen, nineteen year old kids, and I'm saying trust them more, but I do think they provide diversity in our attack, and they're not getting a look in. Mm. Something we've learned about Arteta is he's, with the exception of Saka, he is quite. I, I think I, he is quite pro seniority. Yeah, I was going to ask. You, I was just going to ask you. Do you think that there might be? if we talk about trust in players, is he perhaps not quite as into, if you like, the young players as we might like him to be? Because, mm-hmm. you know, people will laugh at this, but, um, you know, when Sabias is having a stinker of a game, like the one he had yesterday, can you tell me why perhaps and I know we're limited because you've got the three subs and we had two subs because of injuries etc etc but you know someone like Joe Willock who can come on and bring something different to the midfield like Mm -hmm. even with his movement and his running he takes players with him you know and maybe makes space you know in fairness and I think you're right yeah yeah. makes disruptive runs yeah you know and I think you you, if we're going to look for internal solutions well there aren't any external ones um, the the market is closed. We've you got to look. Pretty, yeah, yeah. We've got to look at Smith Rowe. We've got to look at Nelson. We've got to look at at Willock. Even if people are unconvinced by some of these young players, uh, if that's what we want to do, you know, to try and provide a little uh, a little something different. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to sort of bang the drum about Smith Rowe. This is a quote from Steve Cooper, who had him at uh, England youth level. Something he has naturally, which you have to coach into a lot of young players. He is willing to run in behind. Danny Cowley had him at Huddersfield. He said, he makes good runs. He'll make corner runs in behind the fullback. He's willing to stretch the pitch. 
We always encouraged him to do that. We liked his ability to receive the ball behind opposing midfield players. He'd take it on the back foot, front face drive, draw and commit defenders. Mm. I just think... The, I just think that Arsenal miss that element of chaos in their attack. And someone who has that maverick movement, who's prepared to come short. I, I, love, that, I love that this is, is uh, described as maverick. I mean, maybe yeah. it is under Mikel Arteta that this is, you know, this is somehow considered, wow, look at this guy. But, you know, basically it's running to create space or to take players with you or to get in behind or to, you know... It, it shouldn't necessarily be maverick, you know? No, no, but there's a I, I, I know what you mean, yeah. Yesterday of Arsenal trying to build up the play and everybody is staying in their zone because they don't want to get shouted at by Mikel. And um, it, there just isn't the fluidity. Mm. And it's a twofold problem. It's people not going in behind. It's also people not coming short. You know, I, I have sympathy with guys like Louise and Shaka because they got to build it up and they haven't got loads of options to hit in front of them. But if you know, if this if they're gonna get shouted at for getting out of their zones, is Mikel Arteta gonna play players who will do something else, do something different? You know, this is this is a fairly existential question, I guess. We, yeah, can't, yeah, we yeah. can't answer it, but uh, and, and I don't know that they're getting shouted at. I mean, no, I, I know, I know. What I you see mean. them getting shouted at sometimes. Well, but. he does. He talks a lot, doesn't he, on the pitch <laughs> to players, and, and a lot of it is about where he wants them to be. You know, he's telling them literally where to be on the pitch, where to run, um, when to run. You know, you heard him shout at Lacazette, like how many times during the post-lockdown yeah, games? Because all, all you hear is like, Laka, 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 you know, from the side of the pitch or Danny, 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 you know. So I think it goes into that element of controlling uh, the player's movement and where he wants them to be, perhaps so as not to be exposed from a defensive point of view. But look, we better talk about their goal um, I suppose. Painful as it is. The absolute inevitability of it. I mean, honestly, Jamie Vardy was sat a few rows in front of me and I saw him trot out to warm up. I saw him go and have a little chat with Brendan Rodgers and it was just, I, I mean, I I almost couldn't bear to see, when he came on, I grimaced because I was like, this has just got his goal written absolutely all over it. Once bitten, twice shy and all that, you know. The, the Seven same, times bitten. <laughs> yeah, many, many times bitten. This is not our first Vardy rodeo. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, having been fucked by VAR early on, we got fucked by Vardy late on. Um, Very good. The defending for this particular goal uh, was not good. It was mm. not good. Shaka got done a bit too easily, didn't he, with a quick sort of the guy took a step uh, to move into midfield and Shaka went with him and then he made the run. Great pass, in fairness. Um, Partey was trying to block it off but couldn't quite get there. It was a great pass. But what's, uh, you know, frustrating me about the goal in particular um, is Mustafi. <laughs> uh, Gabriel is sort of gesturing to him, like his starting position. He's asleep, basically is what happens, because he'd been uh, up the pitch and he actually made a, a block, Mustafi. He, he, he sort of closed down the man well and made a block, but did not get back into the right kind of area. So he was sort of half asleep when Gabriel was gesturing to him, you know, to move into the space that he was going to have to vacate to cover for Xhaka, who'd been uh, exposed by the ball over the top. So I'm not putting it all on Mustafi because, um, you know, I think we have to give some credit to Leicester for what was a, a well-worked goal. You know, Xhaka obviously 
culpable as well. But, you know, conceding a goal to Jamie Vardy, in which both Granit Xhaka and Shkodran Mustafi are at fault, feels very familiar. Yeah. Uh, uh, so where to start? I mean, Arsenal were worried. Arteta was worried about that pass um, all night. And Tielemans has that pass in his locker. And something that we did very well in the first half is that when Leicester looked to give him the ball... Mm. We basically man-marked him. It was party for the first 20 minutes and then Ceballos after that. And we just didn't give him a second, right? Mm. Um, If he does have a second, if he's not being pressed, which is the case because we left Thomas Party as the sole man in midfield for most of the second half, what you can't do as a defence is squeeze up because you create the space in behind for him to knock it into. Mm. And when Tielemans is on the ball... With no pressure, you have to drop off. Yeah. Mustafi doesn't drop off. I actually think it's it's quite collective. I mean, you know, none of them really drop off, but at least Gabriel has a deeper starting position. Shaka gets done as he's going to do sometimes in that role. And uh, yeah, it's well executed from that point on. But it's yeah. it's a, it's complete concentration. I mean, when Tielemans has the ball at his feet there, you can't be pushing up. As, as Mustafi is doing most egregiously. Yeah, I think what happens is he uh, Tielemans picks the ball up quite... He drops deep and Partey isn't close Yeah, um, for once, I guess, and then the cross and the finish. Oh, but, but in the first half, I mean, again, it's another one of these slightly strange changes that we seem to make at half-time because in the first half, we were on them. We mm. were pressurising them. We were making sure they couldn't play out in, through that player. And... You know, we vacated so much of that space in the second half. And this is one of the big things about our chance creation issues is that we, because I think of our <laughs> kind of our upbringing with Arsene Wenger and Dennis Burkamp and Meza Ozil, we always think that the solution to creating chances is coming through kind of the magic or the ingenuity of a player. But in the Premier League, so many chances are created by forcing errors, mm. you know, by closing people down in their half, winning the ball high and thus getting an overload by, you know, getting the ball in unexpected scenarios. And that was a another hallmark of Arteta's first few months in charge that's slightly gone away. Yeah. And so I, I, I am, yeah, I do feel, you know, like this is a team that, I, I have to be honest, I've slightly lost the clarity of the vision of what we're trying to do. I think that's a really good point. And I'm, with you on that, in that I could previously see um, a, plan a plan, or yeah, a yeah. plan, or at least a system, whether we liked it or not, that that made some sense, and maybe it wasn't that um, exciting, and I don't think it has been that exciting. But you could co- you could sort of see, okay, well, this is what he's trying to do with this group of players. Yesterday, I couldn't really make any sense of it. And I again, I come back to the idea that maybe we just need to be a bit more simplistic, you know, that, that you know, I think as well, the Man City game was one where perhaps uh, the word overthinking was used in terms of our approach. And maybe, yeah, I, maybe that was the case yesterday too. Yeah, I think there is a, a degree of that. There is a degree of that. And um it's easier to see what we're trying to do defensively than offensively at the moment. For okay, sure. I've got one more question that I want to ask you before oh, yeah. um, we go into part two. And I realise we've been going uh, fifty minutes here. Um, 
Are you at all concerned that as a team, we find it difficult to end games strongly? So yesterday we conceded a goal with 10 minutes to go and there was five minutes of injury time. So that's 15 minutes of playing time. A lot can happen in 15 minutes. We didn't have a shot. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a shot. Mm-hmm. In general, and again, I don't want to keep harking back to the the Wenger era, but do you remember games, you must, you know, it happened many times where we would be looking for a goal towards the end of a game and we might have played poorly and we'd finish so strongly very often we'd score a goal. We might not win the game. We might salvage a draw. And we would say afterwards, why can't we play with that kind of intensity for the rest (laughs) of the game? Why does it take for the last 20 minutes or the last 15 minutes for us to sort of really start clicking? And of course, some of that is down to the game state. As the game gets towards the end, you know, you're putting on a bit more pressure on the opposition. One of the big concerns that I have is that as a team, we seem to find it really difficult or are unable to ramp up the kind of attacking pressure, the relentless knocking on the door. You're fucking banging on the door. You're forcing them backwards. You're playing with aggression. You're playing with intensity. You're playing with, you know, this kind of desire um, to squash the opposition back into their own half. We never do that. Mm. Does that worry you? Or, or is it a consequence of this structured play that Arteta wants that, that you know, we cannot play like that because the, 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 um, the consequence of playing that way is that you're, you leave yourself open to counterattack? Uh, uh, so I, it does worry me, but I, and it might be a physical thing, but I don't think it is. I think it is a, an intention and a tactical thing I think it's that handbrake just never coming off and while you would expect it to in the last 10 minutes where you just go hell I mean we went one nil down with 10 minutes to go and I thought well we, we've just got to throw the kitchen sink at it at this point and Arteta resolutely refuses to throw the kitchen sink at stuff mm. you know he is he's staying in you know I mean the fucking handbrake man the fucking handbrake but like it, it, it is still absolutely firmly mm. on he yeah. never just puts the pedal down um it was the same at man city you know when we went one nil down sure and you're in the game at that point i know it's a bit different maybe man city away but slightly different but yeah i mean you know i could understand not doing it for the entire second half but once we got to about 70 minutes there's 20 minutes to go like i get that maybe losing one nil isn't quite as damaging as losing three nil but I don't know. I, I just, do wonder, you know, about. I do wonder about working with Pep, who is such a ideologue, you know, such a, a guy with a mm. clear vision of this is how you play. And I do wonder how it, how much easier that is when you've only managed the best team in your league. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a lot, I would say. You know, Pep's version of football is incredibly structured, but it's also populated with mm. the most talented eleven in whatever league he happens to be managing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do wonder if we are applying the same degree of rigor and structure to a 
a, a less gifted group of individuals. And if that's not necessarily mm. the way to elicit the best performance from them. Yeah. I mean, that could, that could come down uh, and explain to an extent why he is so rigid, because he knows the players he has can't mm-hmm. play in the way that he ideally wants them to play or ideally wants his team to play. Therefore, he keeps them shackled. And the- yeah, or, or, or it's it, or it, to an extent, I would say it's kind of fine to have eleven shackled players when they're the best players in the in the league. Sure, you know, I, I, I kind of shackled in inverted commas, like of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, but I, you know, I think that makes perfect sense. If what you've got is the most gifted group, and you go, well, my job is I'm going to give them structure. Mm. They'll do the rest. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's just yeah. the thought. But I wonder if like. You know what? What his mentor, the degree of his coaching education. I think he might be at a point where he's sort of having to learn and discover. Well, look, maybe there's a time with this sort of player where I have to be a bit less controlling. My grip on them has to be less firm, and that I have to introduce an element of that chaos that is difficult to to defend. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know. It's a really interesting point in his development yeah. as a manager. Yeah, I, okay, yeah. We'll maybe keep going on this in in the second part. But I do think as well that there are some players who thrive in those kind of setups, right? But yeah. there are other players who you can only get the best out of if you give them a bit of rope. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Look, we're going to take a break. We will be back to do some of your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show. The uh, uh, did it again, didn't I? In which we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at ArsBlog on the ArsBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the ArsBlog and on the ArsBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash. Did I just say that? I did. I made a right cock of this fucking thing. The Discord channel, which you get access to if you're an ArsBlog member on Patreon. I'm going to have to write this down and just read from it you're from like now Arsenal. on. 
Promising first half. Yeah, it was all set up so all set up so perfectly. I used to be able to do it no problem whatsoever, and now it's just gone, gone. <laughs> anyway, I thought we touched on some interesting stuff there on Mikel Arteta and and uh, the way he approaches things, and we have a couple of questions of a sort of similar kind of a theme. Mm. Um, let's have a look at this. Uh, we have. Uh, on the Discord. These are all from the Discord from Fernie Badger. Uh, I don't believe the time is now, but when is it fair to ask questions about Arteta? He talks about his win percentage of Arsenal being the same as the bad man. Uh, and we look less promising in attack. Uh, San Kiriko says, Morning chaps, do you think the new manager bounces well and truly over? The performance was deeply worrying given the money we've spent this summer and the resources we've brought in. How long can we say we don't have the personnel when teams around us also perform beyond their ability on paper felt like a naive tactical approach from Arteta did not maximize the uh, benefits of the resources at his disposal and uh, Michael R says is it fair to say the honeymoon is now over for Michael Arteta yeah few questions of that ilk Mm. true story as well said a lack of shots and creativity constant tactical tinkering timid attacking play and playing people out of position is Mikel Arteta becoming Emery-like, but with excellent communication skills? Um, is the honeymoon period over? Certainly on social media, it appears to be. Um, I don't... I. How can I put it? I don't think it is in that I think that there is probably a, a broader acceptance mm. that we're still absolutely a work in progress and in some ways this season we look more of a work in progress than last season um, maybe it's because Arteta is trying to implement something slightly more complex maybe too complex um, but I think that we are learning things about Mikel Arteta and we are learning as I sort of just said at the end of part one, I think that he is a guy who currently has a real adherence to quite a rigid idea of how he wants his team to play. Um, And that may not always be the case, but it feels to me like that's what he's arrived with Mm. and that maybe he is encountering some of the limitations of that. But is that not sort of inevitable when you have a guy in his first job who is applying his ideas for the first time. Yes, I mean, I think the work in progress applies to the team. It also very obviously applies to Mikel Arteta as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. You know, he he is learning on the job. And I think mm-hmm. there are going to be ups and downs. And I think... Some people, for some people, certainly the the honeymoon period is over because they're not seeing perhaps the kind of football that they might like to see or maybe the kind of football that they're seeing isn't being coupled with the kind of results that make you willing to overlook that kind of football, you know? So, you know, this isn't to be like a a pylon on Mikel Arteta. I think it is just human nature. He's been in the job nearly a year now. Um. And he's made decisions, some of them quite big decisions, which are or leave you open to questions, right? You know, are you talking about tactical things? I'm talking about tactical things? things, contractual things. You know, I don't want to open up the old thing, but when you make a decision 
to leave someone like Mesut Ozil out of your team, and I don't want to go into any of the nuts and bolts of it, that's a big decision. You have put your foot down. He knows that. Absolutely he knows that. So when you don't play well or when you don't get results... You know, it's it's understandable that people are going to look for other things. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, he's made decisions which he knows are opening him to criticism and question if we don't play well or if we don't win games. So he knows that it's the same with uh-huh. it's the same with the Aubameyang down the center thing. Yeah, and in terms of the honeymoon being over, I guess it depends what you thought we had in Arteta. You know, if you thought we had a guy who walked into his first job and was the finished product and the perfect manager, then maybe that spell is being a little bit, you know, Mm. shattered at the moment. But if you thought we've got a promising coach with a lot to learn, who's going to go on a journey with this team and with this club, that's not going to be a quick fix, then, you know, maybe you are feeling a bit more understanding at this point mm. um but it, it, i heard elliot on on the arsenal vision reaction pod last night saying well, i haven't listened the to trouble that. is i don't listen to those because i need to keep my own thoughts <laughs> yeah okay yeah 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 no i i uh cheat but they <laughs> um <laughs> but uh they're they're very good but elliot made the point on that that uh, Arsenal have to an extent kind of adopted a relatively short-term strategy in the market by signing people like Partey, Willian, Louise, Cedric, Aubameyang to an extent. And so is there sort of a, is it incumbent on the manager to find relatively swift solutions Mm. for those players? Um, does that not come back into the, 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 the preference, if we we're going to go back to this, the sort of preference for senior players? You know, why do you pick senior players? Because they're, you know, they're experienced, they've been there, they've done that, they're, you know, less, well, nominally less error-prone than than young players. They can carry out the instructions. They understand perhaps the tactical side of the game a little bit more. They don't get phased by, you know, pressure or anything like that. Well, and I I also think there's the argument that the reason you have those experienced players is to give you the bridge, you know, to, like you said with Aubameyang, if you play him up front, maybe he gives you the breathing room Mm. to implement other stuff or to allow young players to blossom. I mean... I was interested by this question on the Discord. Salty says, said, is it wrong to expect losses of this kind on a more regular basis? I think as fans, we need to reevaluate our expectations or we're going to have continuous meltdowns. We are not a top four club anymore. We are the same level as Everton and Wolves and our expectations need to reflect this. I think that might be a good point if you've just been beaten by Man City or Liverpool, but not by Leicester. And I don't mean to be disparaging of Leicester because clearly they're a good side with good players. They've, uh, you know, they had a really, um, really good spell last season. You know, they, Leicester should be in the Champions League this season. Let's be realistic yeah. about that. They had the mother of all collapses, um, which indicates that there are some issues there, um, whether it's with the manager or the squad or, or whatever it might be. But, you know, they were there or thereabouts in terms of Champions League football for most of the season. 
Um, we played a weakened Leicester last night, by the way. You know, no Soyuncu at the back, no Ndidi in midfield. No Vardy game, starting. Vardy didn't start the game. So this was not Leicester at their strongest. Yeah, I mean, I I fully accept that... that uh, the work in progress thing that we have got some way to go to bridge the gap uh, and I think one of the one of the key things is consistency why are you a team that can finish in the Champions League places is it because the calibre of player that you have is far superior to all the others I mean I think in general in Premier League terms you know there are some standout squads and there are some standout players but in general the calibre of player is pretty even right so mm-hmm. it's about producing consistent performances and consistency in your in your displays that's what builds the confidence and gets you on runs of results etc etc so i think that's kind of where we are and i'm not saying that there aren't players in our squad who could be improved who couldn't be improved on that's not what i'm saying i just mean that producing consistency is is really quite difficult i, I think um oh sorry no 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 go on. ahead i was just going to say i do think that one thing I think the question's right about is that given that we're not an elite team and we're a team that's battling for top four, there are going to be bumps in that road. I, I think there's a slightly interesting thing where we have a memory of a time when we were in the top four where the league was quite different mm. and the top four teams, basically, it felt like they beat everybody. It felt like we finished fourth and won all our home games, you know? And uh, I don't think that exists to quite the same extent. I think there's such a clear gap between the top two and the rest. I mean, Chelsea last season finished fourth and they lost 12 games, you know? And and I do think that in terms of making the top four this season, we will lose games. Whoever makes it will lose games. And it's not necessarily the disaster... Uh, that it feels like if the process is good. Um, Mm. But I think it's fair to have questions about the process at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, I'm trying to think of questions here because we, you know, I'm conscious a lot of the questions we've been asked are the things that we've been talking about. Um, Takar, who's at Takar75, says, do you think the absence of fans affected the result last night? That was the first time I felt that if the stadium was full, the result would be different. And maybe just sort of widening that out a little. How, How do you think the reaction of fans to some of our performances might have an impact on Mikel Arteta's thinking or reactions to the way he sets up his teams? That's a really good question because (laughs) I know the home fans at Arsenal and I know that and in that second half they would have been urging for something different, 100%. And as much as they might support Mikel Arteta, I think there would have been a tension there. And maybe, I mean, maybe... um, Maybe this isn't so crazy to suggest that our inability to kind of turn the screw is in part associated with a lack of fans. It, you know, it does feel like sometimes there is a 
How can I put it? A relationship. Yeah, yeah. And there's a relationship and a chemistry. They sort of become catalysts for each other, Mm. fans and team, and they turn the pressure up. Well, yeah, exactly. How how many times has there been like a moment, a tackle, a a shot, a run, something that energises the crowd, that energises the team? And I know it's it's impossible to sort of um, to say exactly how much influence it has and, and everything else. It's an intangible, but it's there. It's, it's real. It's there, it's real. Yeah. And adrenaline is real. And all those, you know, the psychology of it is very, very real. I mean, the the stats for away wins in lockdown are, as far as I understand it, pretty substantially skewed. You know, home advantage is not what it was. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that maybe does have an input. I would be fascinated to see how crowds would react to this team because I think there is an enormous amount of goodwill behind Mikel Arteta. Mm. But I also think there are things this team is doing uh, wrong or not getting right Mm. that I think I know Emirates crowds, you know, wouldn't enjoy. So that would be very, very, very interesting. Very, Mm. very interesting indeed. I, I mean, fundamentally, I think that I kind of have this sense and it's, this isn't a particularly original observation, that Arteta came in and managed to strike upon a formula that was the right formula for the back end of last season. In the, It enabled Arsenal to play in a certain way that enabled them to play every few days, which was the demand of Project Restart. It was an incredibly demanding schedule, and it meant that you know we had to play a, a slightly more compact fashion. Mm. It meant that it was very successful against sides who are better than us um, at times. But it, it's maybe not the way to play in the longer term moving forward. And I almost feel like we, we're we kind of stuck in that rut. We're kind of yeah. stuck in that pattern. But maybe that's... Maybe that is the pattern. Mm. Shall we have another question? Yeah, let's... Um, I like the start of this one from... Uh, J. Alex at Jordan AM 1988. Is Ainsley Maitland-Niles dead? <laughs> <laughs> and could we have dropped one of Shaka or Sabayos to fit him in as a left wing back? I mean, basically a few people asking, where is Maitland-Niles? And uh, why aren't we seeing him? Les said, was happy when I saw the lineup, but I expected Danny to operate higher up the field. Is Ainsley Maitland-Niles now fourth choice right back behind Hector, Cedric and Ceballos? Isn't it fucking weird that Cedric played in the Europa League, Mm. can't even make the squad for the Premier League? Has he been in the squad for a Premier League game this season? I don't think so. I mean... But Maitland-Niles is sort of... skin of his teeth, if he has. Maitland-Niles is sitting on the bench. Why couldn't he have played the Europa League game? Like, if Cedric is not good enough or not deemed good enough or essential enough to even make the squad for a Premier League game, why fucking use him at all? I don't get it. I, I don't mean, get maybe it. maybe Maitland-Niles has been late for training again, genuinely, because oh. it doesn't make any sense. I, I honestly think... I mean, I like Maitland-Niles, and I was glad he stayed. But if he's going to be used this much, he should have been sold. Hmm. Yeah. He should have been sold if this was his standing in the squad. And um, that money should have been used on Husemua or whoever else it was. Yeah. 
Yeah, I hate to be that blunt about it, but at the moment it's difficult to justify turning down the money for him because we're just not using him. Yeah, I don't understand why I don't have any insight as to why. Um, Nor do I at this point, and I have mm. to say that is that was the issue uh, back around Christmas time. But uh, as far as I understood, that was all in the past. So maybe it's a tactical thing, but I am a little bit bemused at how as, ha- as to how from. You know the Community Shield and blah blah Make, blah. Yeah, making his you know England debut and you know being yeah. so good that um, yeah, I don't know. I wish I could tell people what the answer is there. Um, let me have a look here and see. Do I have a question? I do. Obviously, this is something that came up because of what happened last night in the Leicester team. Uh, Cove, who's sure. at Dogog on Twitter says, having seen Wesley Fofana thrive this season being thrown into that Leicester team, does that make the decision not to include Saliba even more strange considering he was arguably the higher rated centre-back coming out of Saint-Étienne? And a, a number of people have asked that and made that observation. I think it's uh, interesting. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, look, there are people who last season felt that Fofana... Uh, was better um, than Saliba. I think, you know, there are also people who think Saliba was better and when he was injured, St Etienne massively suffered. They clearly were both thought of as really good prospects. Mm. I think that uh, Arteta not playing him and not using Saliba, yeah, it could tell you about where Saliba is in his development and that could be really worrying. But we also know that Arteta has quite strong criteria, doesn't he, for who he wants to pick and who he doesn't want to pick. And I suppose that I have that nagging doubt in my mind of, in the same way that someone might say, oh, is Ozil really worse than what we've got out there? I sort of feel like, is William Saliba really, really mm. worse? You know what I mean? Mm. If he's fit, it does seem odd. Mm-hmm. Worryingly and even odd? if he was... Even if he was ten million too expensive, do you know what I mean? At this point, it doesn't really matter. We've got him. Uh, yeah, it is a curious, curious situation. And as strange as the Urzel situation is, and as much discussion and investigation as that warrants, I think you could kind of say the same about this. Mm-hmm. It's fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking weird. It is, isn't it? Yeah, he's a twenty-eight million, nearly thirty-pound central defender. You and know? look, tough things have happened in his life, of course. Sure. But it doesn't mean he can't play at all. Quite often playing is the the escape Precisely. from the tough things in your life. Um, you know, which isn't this. to downplay those in any way, but very often, you know, when you go out on a football pitch or on the training pitch, you 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 can kind of forget about those things. It gives you the and escape. When- and when I look at Gabriel, who, by the way, I think has been excellent, really, since mm. he came in. I think what what a good signing, and thank God we made that signing, especially given what's happened with Saliba. But part of what makes him so good is is the frame and the size and the build. Mm. And I tell you, if you see Saliba on a pitch, this guy is absolutely massive. And there is an extent to which there's a certain degree of security even just in that. I mean, I yeah, I feel really sad that we're not going to see him. Um, yeah, because you went, didn't you? You went I to... I went Snetting, yeah. He's not a bad player. There's no way he's a bad player. I mean, this guy will have a career, whether it's at Arsenal or not. 
he'll have a career and I'd venture he'll be uh, as good as, you know, half the centre-halves we've got. I'd say he'll be better than Chambers, better than Mustafi, you know, probably better than Socrates at this point. Mm. I, I, I'd be pretty sure about that. But, yeah. I mean, look, I, it's a really, really odd situation. And again... I guess it's an example of Arsenal not maximising their resource. How much money is tied up in players that we are not getting the best out of? Hmm. Well, a lot. Yeah, a lot. A lot. And I'm not just talking about Ozil and, and Saliba, you know? Yeah. You can, look, you can look at players like Pepe or you can even argue the case with Aubameyang. You can... Yeah, I mean, look, it 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 doesn't necessarily make all the sense in the world, does it, to give a three hundred grand, three hundred and fifty grand a week deal to uh, a thirty-one-year-old centre forward who you're never going to use at centre forward? I mean, you mm-hmm. could question that as as important as Aubameyang is, and as much as I wanted him to stay and want him to stay, and and uh, the goals that he scored for us. If you want to spend that kind of money on a player, do you not, um, how do I put this? I mean, do you not like look for a specialist, if you like, rather than play somebody out of position, even though they can do a good job there? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, you know what I think about that. I'm not Mm. sure I think the left is out of position. I think he can do both. But... I do think there's a question over that decision. There has to be because we're not winning from it. You know, we're not we're not uh, reaping the benefits of that decision yet. Mm. And Aubameyang is a tricky player because he's kind of entirely service dependent. You know, like mm. he he he's not someone who you know like is going to sort of. T- well, it, he, he does score some very good goals. But generally, whenever you talk about his performance, you have to caveat it with, does he get the supply? So at the moment, we're not really looking at him so much as looking at the problems around him, mm. which is right. But equally, on the other side of that coin, he's not magically making the difference at this point. Um, so, yeah, mm. it, it's, it's, it's a slight concern. Bit of a concern. We're looking for magic. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And, yeah, but is that not what we need a sprinkling of in this attack? Sure, sure. I don't disagree with that. You know, I was just thinking of a wizard with a wand and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's an interesting one because look, what is he? He's a finisher, mm. so it's all determined by supply, and I get that. But um, you know what he needs? What? Mickey. <laughs> Sorry. I tell you this, right? This is my <laughs> confession. I said it in my post-match video. At a point in last night's game, I found myself yearning for uh, <laughs> the Unai Emery, Mkhitaryan and Iwobi playing in the wing-backs. I, I honestly did, because I was like, at least I sort of understood the way we were trying to get to goal at that point. Granted, mm. that's partly because it was astonishingly simple. But, I, you know, I feel, <laughs> how rose-tinted are my spectacles, Andrew? I seem to remember that, like, 
we we could like crank up the pressure with that. Yes, it was often annoying and Kalasnach would just smash the ball into the first defender. But I feel like we got there. I feel like we at least got into the final third. Well, what we don't really have at the moment in the team, James, are players who can run with the ball. Right. Do we? Really? Mm, not in last night's team. Tierney, maybe. Bellerin, a little bit in terms of those Bellerin can dribble. Saka can dribble, I would say. Yeah. But Tierney apart can knock that, it past a bloke and... and yeah, you know, he's, he's got go the one trick. Line. Knock it, run, cross. You know, and it's good and it's effective and that's not to be critical of it. Yeah, he's a straight line player for yeah. me. But, yeah, ball carriers. Ball We're carriers, not, yeah. I mean, you know, Pepe was brought to to assuage that. He's not playing every game. I, I Listen, I uh, more I agree with everyone. Willian's been very underwhelming so far. Mm. Um, if he can be better... He can add something, I think, to this team. Um, he is a complement, in theory, he is a complementary player for some of these attackers. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. Mm. Uh, what, I'm just trying to find something slightly else. cheerier. Good luck. Yeah, no. Hang on. Uh, there must be something. <laughs> okay, here's one Here's one from the Discord. Zach Taze says, what was the pill Aubameyang took last night? Wrong answers only, please. Uh, I mean, I, I hope for his sake it was something worthwhile, something enjoyable. Mm. Um, nice, what nice, what like about this dove. question? Yeah. Arsenal Shine Dave. I genuinely think this is quite interesting. He said... How? Uh, by the way, shout out to this question from Alan on Twitter, King of Anglia, who said, why is Lacazette so, so bad? I think this is an amazing question. Uh, <laughs> I think it is a good question, but we kind of dealt with it in part one. Um, Arsenal Shine Dave says, how would we be lining up if we signed our? I'm frustrated by our lineups and where we have certain players. And had we bought a player as a creative one, how do you think Arteta would have used him? And can he accept that Saka needs to be used in the same way? So are we also signing Partey or not? Yeah, let's say we've got both. Dream scenario. How different a team, in terms of the way it's set up, do you think we'd be looking at? That's a good question. Um, or would Awar be playing right back like Sabaya? <laughs> um, let me think about this. I mean, I think you could anchor your midfield with Partey, couldn't you? You could anchor yeah, it. for sure. You could have... Our on the left of him, and you could maybe put Sabayos to the right of him, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then your front three of Saka, Aubameyang down the middle, and you know, I would I would just like to see a front three of Saka, Aubameyang, and Pepe get a few games mm -hmm. to see what they can produce together because. We were all like super excited about what Pepe, Aubameyang, and Lacazette were going to bring, and mm. that hasn't happened. But the only combination that has shown any promise within that trio is Pepe and Aubameyang. They've mm. they've worked together, and Pepe has created some goals for Aubameyang. And I think as well, we've seen signs that Saka and Aubameyang can be a good combination. So if you've got two players outside Aubameyang who can combine with him, 
And then you've got more creative players behind him as well. I think that's how, well, that's how I would probably have done it. And in the absence of our, I mean, one of my, this is what I was tweeting out, tweeting about before the podcast and you were going to jump in on, so I'll ask you now. But one of my, uh, I suppose, concerns, if you if you flip Aubameyang in for Lacazette, is obviously mm. you don't want Aubameyang to play the role Lacazette is playing right now, right? You don't want him to be chasing defensive midfielders no. and, and running around fouling people. You want him to be in the box. That creates a, a vacancy, I guess, between, but it, it, you know, in that kind of zone fourteen, you know, behind the striker area that Lacazette is sort of trundling around in at present. With the players we've got now, how do we feel that? Well, let's remember that Lacazette has been running around in that system in a kind of a in a back three, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. we. Uh, we're missing a man in midfield. So you've got an extra man in midfield. Mm-hmm. But, so, but literally, like, who should that person be? Do you have any... Because, like, Ceballos is, like, maybe that guy. Perhaps he's a bit sluggish. Yeah. I mean, maybe that guy is William. you know? Could be, or... Uh, Saka. I, 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 yeah, Saka. I mean, I also... The, the question sort of touches on this. I think Saka is great on the left and I think he absolutely could be a left winger. I wonder in the absence of an hour type player, if he is the closest thing we have to a sort of someone who can play mm. as a central playmaker because yeah. he can, he can dribble, he can pass, you know, he can do all those kind of number 10 things. Yeah. I would like to see us. Yeah. I mean, use I, it. sure. I, I do remember of, Old Trafford last year yeah. and, um, he played in Aubameyang. Aubameyang scored the goal. I think it was originally flagged offside and then oh, yeah, returned. Yeah. Yeah. Just that moment, I come back to that moment sometimes. I, I think the problem at the moment, of course, is that if we don't have Martinelli, our, our options for the left-hand side are limited. Mm. You know, who have we got who can play there? If you move Saka Central, Reese Nelson... Doesn't seem to be playing much. Yeah, not convinced by Pepe there. No. Um, mm. Not convinced by Eddie and Ketia there, certainly. Well, well, yes, I think that is that is a good point. Mm. Um, Do you think... So, you know, yeah. I mean, we all know we're missing a player, don't we? Yeah, we yeah, all yeah. Know that. yeah. We said that in the last podcast, that there's still at least one fairly significant piece missing. Um, so, yeah. The other thing to say is that to sort of bring back the five channels thing is those wide forwards, you know, Saka and Pepe, whoever it is, they don't have to play on the touchline. You know, Mane and Salah aren't playing out on the touchline. They're mm. playing narrow. Mm. And and when... I, I keep coming back to this idea that when the, when the front three has worked best under Arteta, they have been really narrow. And it has almost been this kind of inverted V. Mm. And, and I, I think that that is, you know, as much part of it as anything else. You know, you could have Aubameyang at the point of the attack and you could have Saka and Pepe behind and playing within the width of the penalty area. I mean, if you remember Arsene Wenger's three at the back system uh, that we played in sort of 2017, we had a lone striker in theory there, Giroud or as well back in the cup final. 
And then you had Alexis and Ozil behind it. Yeah. But they weren't playing as wingers. No, that's They're true. They're playing as kind of dual tens. Leicester themselves have done it with with Madison and Barnes sometimes. Mm. You know, and I think Saka and Pepe, you put them in those positions, maybe that unlocks something. Yeah. Look, I think we... Easier said than done. Yeah, of yeah. course. Of course. But there are things we could try, at least. Um, just very finally, because we've got a game on Thursday against Dundalk. Do you expect a lot of rotation for this one? Is this the kind of fixture that we're going to see... Reese Nelson play, Emil Smith Rowe perhaps play, um, you know, Joe Willard. I think Willard. so. And let's, I, I want to see those guys play. Yeah. I'm not saying they've got to be starting every Premier League game, but they've got to be options. What's the point in us keeping them? We've stopped them going out on loan mm. in some of these cases. So we've got to start developing them and seeing if they might have something to offer. Yeah. And I, I hope that Arteta holds his nerve with that and doesn't, you know, because he's lost this game, think, oh, I've got to play all the first teamers. And mm. We've got a big, big game at Old Trafford. Um, did you see any of the United-Chelsea game? Absolutely diabolical. I, I mean, Yeah, well, I was cooking um, and it was on in the background. Right. And I just I mean, I suppose lost it, attention. It, you would have turned around if there'd been a highlight, but there were no highlights. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. You know how on Sky, on the, if you have Sky, you get on the red button, you can sort of recap. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I joined the game at like just the start of the second half and I did that and there were two chances on the recap. One was a blocked shot from 30 yards that was blocked like, you know, <laughs> just skewed out for a throw-in. And the other was a downward header in the penalty box from Harry Maguire that was cleared. They were the highlights that Sky picked out. It was really awful. It was two sides who also look shy on confidence, uh, also did not seem to play with a great deal of attacking mm. ambition. I mean, look, our record oh. is so terrible there. This is going to make Harry Maguire's headed winner all the more depressing next week. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's, But as I say... The only comfort to be drawn is that this is a league where, fortunately, everybody is dropping points mm. and there is a long way to go. And if we can find some solutions, nothing is off the table at this stage. Still um, early days. It is. It is. And, you know, there will be more defeats and more backwards. Steps. Well, yeah, of course. But I mean, look, if we if we're sitting here next Monday talking about a win over uh, Manchester United at, all, at Old Trafford, everything will feel an awful lot rosier. That is just that the is nature that's results, of the yeah. beast, and that's what results do uh, to us as uh, long-suffering football fans. So there you go. Anyway, uh, to you long-suffering listeners, thank you very much indeed for being here as always. Um, we will catch you later uh, on the next one, but um, we appreciate you being here. Stay safe. Stay well. Uh, look after each other and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.